This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Today I would like to give a shout out to Shakita from KZN. Thank you very much for the kind email. I'd also like to say a very special thank you to one of my listeners who wishes to remain anonymous. This person helped fact check some of the Jewish aspects of this episode. an evil world and our father has saved us out from this wicked and perverse this miscreant generation and here we are in a secure wonderful place where we can raise our children in peace this is decoding cults and i am your host palsy you are listening to the 12 tribes part two in today's episode we will continue to look at the growth of the group and also delve into some of their beliefs. If you haven't listened to the first part, I suggest you stop here and go back and listen. That way the story will make more sense. Last week, we left off in the late 1970s, where the group had expanded their business footprint and had received tax-exempt status from the IRS. We continue in 1977, when Gene wrote a paper wherein he insisted that obedience is the only way to honor God and that a true follower cannot have any independence. Some people took to his writings, and with this, he managed to convince them to separate from their families. He even taught his followers that anyone outside does not understand and are evil. This was confirmed by Melinda Horton in that same 1979 article which I found on question12tribes.com in which she states that when her parents started getting worried about the group and its teachings, they forbade her to attend critical mass. Melinda told her parents they were of Satan. Besides this, Members were encouraged to only read the Bible and spend their free time with only other members of the group. They were not allowed any contact with their families, and on rare occasions where they were, they were always accompanied by a chaperone. In those cases where the families would not give up on trying to see their children, the group would move them to another community so that they could create more distance. The followers were told that if they should leave, God would strike them dead and any doubts that they had about the teachings was planted there by Satan. If it was found that anyone inside of the group had any contact with the person who had left, they would be publicly shamed for it. The group came into the limelight again when it was alleged that they were hiding the 7 and 12-year-old children of Wilma Castleberry, 
when her husband took them during a messy custody battle and handed them into the care of the group. Wilma looked for her kids for months, and it wasn't until a friend of hers spotted the children working at a yellow deli six months later where she could call the authorities. But when they got there, Jean refused to hand the children over. Wilma eventually went to court, and the group received a court order to release the children back into their mother's care. This was also the year where Jean was invited to a community in Island Pond in Vermont. They had heard of his teachings and read some of his papers. This community was dissatisfied with their current situation and were looking for a new interpretation of how to live a Christian life. Jean was so successful in his message that they created the Northeast Kingdom Community Church right there in Island Pond. By 1978, Jean started moving some of the members up to Vermont and would eventually insert himself as the leader of that community. It was during this time that the group started to get a bad reputation around Chattanooga. Some of the churches were not happy that Jean had started to perform baptisms, especially since he was not formally ordained in any way. They also took offense to the fact that he was teaching his followers that they were all basically evil and they were losing congregants to him. Two of the local universities started receiving complaints about the recruitment of their students at Yellow Delhi. At first, Bryan College told their students that this facility was out of bounds. They were followed by Tennessee Temple and Covenant College. In 1978, news spread around the world about the mass suicide of the People's Temple in Guyana. This is a group that I will cover in later episodes. Because of this, the Cult Awareness Network, which I did discuss with you in the previous episode, was formed. Rumors started that the group was a cult and that they also alleged child abuse. People outside of the group noted that many of the children looked dirty and malnourished. These rumors would soon be verified by members who would leave the group. I looked into the allegations of child abuse, and I would just like to insert a trigger warning here. If this type of material causes you emotional distress, I urge you to skip over the next minute or two. I found a document written by Jean called Our Child Training Manual. For the most part, it looked pretty benign, and he speaks about loving and respecting your children. And then, I happened across this gem on page 15. Quote, How much hatred is shown to our children who are not trained up in the way? The only way they can go and be fashioned, shaped, formed, and fashioned in this way. There is no other way except God's way for our children to be trained. This is then the prescription for life. And this is love. To spare the rod, the prod, the goad, is tantamount to hating your child. But love sees to it that your child is trained and disciplined promptly. End quote. Yep, you guessed it. Except in this case, they outwardly advertise that it is done in the spirit of love and never in anger. Several people, however, came forward and spoke of severe beatings, which sometimes lasted for several hours. The followers are told that they need to discipline their children with a literal rod, like a thin cane, as it states in the Bible. And, um, brace yourselves, they were taught that, quote, the blueness of the wound drives away all evil, end quote. Children would get beaten for even minor infractions, 
like asking for seconds during a meal or playing make-believe because they were told that this is the devil influencing them and that this could possibly interfere with the entire community's relationship with God. As a matter of fact, children could not play at all. They needed to be quiet at all times. Children were told that playing was them mimicking Satan's world, and when they were caught playing, they would get beaten. Jean said that the fact that children were so still and well-behaved was proof that their teachings worked, because he was spanked as a child, both at school and at home, and according to him, it was because his elders cared. Any one of the adults were allowed to punish any one of the children, and then the children were expected to thank the adult after their beating. One of the lessons used to keep children in line was to use a verse in Proverbs where it speaks about birds pecking the eyes out of children when they disrespect their parents. The followers were told that they should start spanking their children from the age of six months. This breaks my heart. What on earth could a tiny baby of six months old possibly do wrong, especially to warrant being given a hiding? In a Denver Post article published on 3 March 2022, one of the interviewees noted that if a toddler would throw a tantrum, an adult will have to, quote, grab the girl, hold her tight on his lap, perhaps by throwing his legs over hers, restrain both her arms and put his hand over her mouth until she stops fighting back. The toddler might scream and cry and struggle for an hour. She would not be let free until she surrendered, the former member said. The idea is to break her will, end quote. The members of the group were also taught that you need to break the spirit of a child by the time they were four. If you did not manage this, the child was a lost cause because their basic character had been formed. If this sounds familiar to you, it is. Erlo Stegen from Kwasi Sabantu had a similar view. This made me think that maybe Jean had learned something around child development during his studies in psychology. I did do some research, and according to oxbridgeacademy.edu.za, quote, Early Childhood Development, ECD, refers to the physical, psychological, cognitive, and social development that a child experiences between birth and school-going age. Based on various scientific studies, we know that early childhood development plays a key role in determining whether a child will reach his or her full potential. The events that occur during these early years of childhood have a lasting impact and will affect the child's growth and development throughout his or her life. End quote. I also found the following on hg.org. Quote, when a child has been subjected to the actions and behaviors of cults and members, these wounds often leave deep scars that last well into adulthood. Without proper treatment and therapy, the long-lasting effects could cause the individual to resent, have emotional complications, and to process psychological problems that could induce certain conditions and impairments. The consequences of the parents joining a cult or the child being taken in by someone in the organization often lead to difficulty socializing, believing in anything, and trusting others. Without recovery options available, these deep-seated issues fester and may harm the adult once part of a cult. 
it is possible he or she may join a cult later to satisfy the need that has been left after leaving. Some that are religious seek the cult to fill the same spiritual need, but, as children, they are unaware of the harmful effects of false devotion, love that comes with a price, and members with ulterior motives. When the object is to abuse the child in the organization, many of these youths grow up to continue the cycle they were taught at a younger age. Then, others need the same recovery options and treatment denied to these kids, end quote. I think the cult leaders would like to break a child's spirit to ensure their complete compliance to the group's doctrine. Things were not going great for the Light Brigade, and they would eventually sell off all of their businesses and property in Chattanooga, and they systematically all relocated to Island Pond by 1979. With this move, and I think because of what happened previously, they became a tight-knit introverted group. This move, however, did not stop the rumors from following them. The group opened a new restaurant in Island Pond called the Common Sense Cafe. Ironic. They would also start purchasing community-owned farms, which would provide produce to the restaurants. Some of the farms were named the Common Sense Farm, yes, like the cafe, but others were called Morning Star Farms. They also branched out into other types of businesses, opening a bakery, a print shop, and a plumbing and heating company. The followers would all live communally on the farms and work in the businesses. I quickly want to step away from the group for a moment. As many of you know, Christianity basically sprung forth from Judaism. So, basically, the Jews believed in God way back in the beginning. And then where it begins to split is where Christians believe that Jesus was born as a physical manifestation of God and he came down to earth to absolve us from all of our sin. Jesus' disciples were in fact Jews. The Jewish faith, however, does not believe in Jesus. There was a movement that had sprung during the late 19th and early 20th century called the Hebrew Christian Movement, where there were Jews who adopted the Christian faith, but still retained Jewish practices. This also gave way to Messianic Judaism, which started around the 1960s and 70s, so Messianic Jews believe that Jesus is their Messiah, but they believe that both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament of the Christian Bible are the authoritative scriptures. They abide by Jewish law, but believe they can only achieve salvation by accepting Jesus, who they refer to as Yeshua, as their Savior. I promise this will make sense in a second. Jean started including teachings from the Torah, but he did this out of context and with no real knowledge of the Jewish faith. Now, I must admit, I have no knowledge about the Jewish faith either, so I purchased Judaism for dummies. In it, they explained that the Torah, which means teachings, refers to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Tanakh. The five books of the Torah are said to narrate the story from the creation of the world to the death of Moses. If we relate these back to the Bible, they would be the first five books of the Old Testament. But they have different names. Genesis is known as Breshit, which means beginning. Exodus is known as Shmot, which means names. 
Leviticus is known as Vayikra, I hope I said that right, which means, and he called. Numbers is known as Bar Midbar, which means the wilderness. And lastly, Deuteronomy is known as Devarim, which means words. The group started to observe the Sabbath, which I did touch on in my series on the Branch Davidians, but just as a refresher, the Sabbath, or Shabbat, starts at sunset on a Friday and lasts until after nightfall on a Saturday, when at least three stars are visible in the sky. Within the Jewish faith, this day is seen as a day in which you take off to reflect, sing, be with loved ones and replenish your body and soul. There are also rituals and services attached to this holy day. Jean also included some of the Jewish celebrations, including Yom Kippur. This is also known as the Day of Atonement. In a nutshell, Jews will fast on this day and reflect on their sins of the past year. They will then seek forgiveness for their sins against God and their fellow men. This usually happens in September or October of a year. In the book, Better Than a Turkish Prison, Sanasta J. Kulucci describes how in the community, the week heading up to Yom Kippur, people would go around to one another confessing their inequities. He had found that many of these confessions felt, well, fake. I think they were either just confessing for the sake of it, or were not truly seeking forgiveness for what they had done, as they didn't really think that they were doing anything wrong. He also noted that once you had confessed your sin, it would usually be responded to with a Bible verse or a phrase often used within the community. Now, I'm just going to veer a little more away from the story for a second because the use of phrases in the community stood out to me. When investigating cults, experts often speak to a term called thought-stopping phrases or thought-stopping techniques. These are words or phrases used by the group to sort of eliminate your critical thoughts and bring you back to their version of groupthink. At times, they will use everyday phrases but change the meaning to suit their doctrine. Dr. Hassan also had this type of control in the bite model under thought control. Under point three, use of loaded language and cliches which constrict knowledge, stop critical thought and reduce complexities into platitudinous buzz. I found a few examples of this in Sinaster's book. If it was found that someone was proud of an achievement, they would say, quote, pride comes before the fall. When a follower was strongly opinionated, they would be told, quote, when you're strong, you're wrong. Or they would say, it is better to be wrong together than right alone. Wow, that one is crazy to me. It makes me think that in this way, even if they are wrong, it's fine because they're all wrong. Another one that was often used around parents, when they had what the group deemed unruly children, it was discipline on the first command. What I found strange is that even though the group adopted some of the teachings and holidays from the Jewish faith, their teachings are extremely anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism, or in simple terms, Jew hatred, has been around for the last 2,000 years, where Jews have constantly been persecuted for some or other reason. 
One of the big beliefs that brings forth hatred is the belief that the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. Now, I am by no means an expert in the Bible or its history, but even I know that the crucifixion was authorized by the Romans, who were the dominating force at the time. And please, don't think that this means I have anything against Italians. I do not. I love them dearly. I'm just stating a historical fact for the time. Jean started teaching that Jews were collectively responsible for the death of Christ. He used Matthew 7 verse 25 to back this up. It reads, The whole crowd answered, Let the responsibility for his death fall on us and our children. Jean basically interpreted that this was the Jews taking full responsibility for the death of Jesus. Now, something else Jean started to include in his teachings was the fact that Jesus, as taught in other churches, is actually an invention of Satan and is inherently evil. They instead needed to believe in Yeshua, more loosely translated as Joshua, but also used as Jesus in the Bible. Now, according to Jean, Yeshua is the essence of what Jesus was supposed to be and was uncorrupted by the mainstream church denomination system. He further stated that all who believed in Yeshua would strive to emulate the true church as written in the book of Acts. I did cover this section of Acts in the previous episode. But what completely boggles my mind is that Jean is spouting this anti-Semitic hogwash mostly claiming that the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ, while at the same time denouncing Jesus himself. <sighs> anyway, Jean told his followers that they were in actual fact the true Jews. This type of thinking is called supersessionism, or replacement theology. This is the belief that Christians have replaced the Jews as the chosen people of God. Throughout church history, Many Christian theologians saw the new covenant in Christ as a replacement for the Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant that God made with the Jews, and saw the Christian church as the new people of God. Jean also renamed himself Yonik, which he said meant a tender shoot or sprig, which is kind of a play on his surname Spriggs. Martha became ha Emek, and Jean's 2IC Eddie was renamed Hockham, which they said meant wise man, which is convenient because, if you recall, his surname was Wiseman. All the members within the group were to shed their given names and were all given Hebrew names. Any children born into the group from that point forward were also given Hebrew names. Are there any alarm bells going off yet? Well, he also implemented a dress code for the followers. The men had to grow beards and needed to grow their hair to a point where it could be tied behind their heads with a band. On the 12 tribes website, it states, quote, In ancient Israel, both unbound hair and a shaved head were public signs of mourning or of some uncleanliness, end quote. Women were not allowed to show any skin under the collarbone their arms needed to be covered up to the elbows, and their hair needed to be parted down the middle and set into a braid. Should any of the followers need to wear glasses, they were only allowed round frames. 
During their morning sermons, women needed to ensure that their hair was covered and men were to wear a thin band around their head. Oh, and when you had fallen out of favor for some or other reason, you were not allowed to wear the headband to any of the gatherings so that the rest of the group could know that you had done something wrong. Every moment of their lives is surrounded by rules, including how they have to go about their lives. They are even told how to use toilet paper. Yep, you heard right. In his book, Sanasta explains how you could only use three to four squares of toilet paper, which you needed to fold into the size of one square, wipe, fold, repeat, until you had a small square which you flushed. Their diet was also strictly controlled, and they ate mostly plant-based meals. Jean would also monitor people's weight, and if one of the followers was found to be a bit overweight, he would shame them in front of the whole group, telling them that they were living in sin and they needed to repent for their lack of self-control. Remember those alarm bells I spoke of earlier? By now they should be deafening. If we overlay these teachings with the bite model, we can see that he implemented strict behavioral control by regulating the followers' daily lives, their food intake, and even the way they dressed. He also practiced thought control by changing their names and thus their identity. Jean announced to his followers that the apocalypse, as described in the book of Revelations, was coming soon. He did not give a specific date, but he did stress that it was imminent. Obviously, he stated that those who followed him would be safe, but if you did not follow his teachings, you were evil and you would go to hell. In mainstream Christianity, they do teach about heaven and hell, but Jean took this one step further. He started preaching about the three eternal destinies. Jean told his followers that all of mankind was made up of three categories, and each of these categories had their own eternal destiny. Let's start with the categories. I found a booklet on 12tribes.org which says about the categories, quote, The first category contains two classifications of people who do evil, the unjust and the filthy. The unjust take advantage of others for their own selfish gain. The filthy ruin the lives of others with their own moral corruption. The second category is made up of those who do good, called the righteous or just. The righteous are the good people of every nation and culture who live according to the dictates of their own conscience. They fear God and respect other human beings. The third category is the holy. Holy means set apart. The holy live entirely for the one who redeemed them. They are members of the holy nation which the God of heaven is raising up on the earth. So basically, if you follow Jean, you are part of this holy group. Then the booklet explains exactly what each category's eternal destiny will be. The unjust and the filthy will go to the place prepared for Satan and his angels, experiencing forever and ever a second death in the eternal lake of fire. The righteous will go to the place that has been prepared for them since the world began, enjoying a second life in the nations of God's eternal kingdom. The holy will experience eternal life in a place prepared for God's very own special people. 
they will be in his dwelling place forever, metaphorically called the Holy City, New Jerusalem, the Bride of Messiah, end quote. Later in the booklet, it states that a person's destiny is not pre-planned, but is in fact a choice. You see, they say that each person has a conscience which tells them instinctively what is right or wrong. If a person chooses to listen to their conscience and does what is right, they'll be okay. But if they choose to do what is wrong, despite instinctively knowing that it is not right, then they're in for eternal damnation. So if you follow Gene, you'll basically be in the heaven above heaven, and also Gene himself would be working closely with God. But if you choose not to follow Gene and also to do evil, then you will burn in the fiery lake in hell. Oh, and if you are a member but decide to leave, then sorry, you're going to burn for all eternity as well. Here we can see that he is furthering his us versus them teaching, and also controlling his followers by making them fear the outside world. On the bite model and the thought control, we can see how he is instilling black and white and good versus evil thinking. Fear of the outside world is also a point under emotional control. In our next episode, we will continue with the teachings and also more on the progression of the group. Remember, we are still in 1979. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Also, please invite your family and friends to listen too. If you are listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can also leave comments if you want. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcult at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that we sent you. This week, I want to say manjitak to all of my listeners in Denmark. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.